Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He is here Fridays at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Well, thank you, and thank you for the uh, samples of A&H's uh, delicacies, which we look forward to uh, sampling. For those who thought it was a joke when we said we were going to shower you with A&H gifts, <laughs> now we know it was reality, and now you have an opportunity to grill away, as the summer expression goes. Very anxiously looking forward to it and hoping you get a good Cadillac sponsor or <laughs> Tesla or somebody. If you, if, you see, if, you see, if you see a unique vehicle pulling up to your front door, you'll know that we are responsible for I it. I know it's the wrong address, right? <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, you know, the news of the... I mean, there's a lot of news this week, and obviously we'll talk about uh, uh, the race here for the White House, which uh, took quite an interesting um, uh, turn this week. We'll talk all about that. But first, we'll start with Israel and the UAE in a, in a deal that seems to have been brokered the way it's being spoken about and promoted by the United States of America, by Washington, by the White House, by President Trump, uh, there is now a, it seems, and you'll tell us, you'll give us the details about whether this is actually ironclad at the moment or we're on the way to it. It was a little confusing to me if this is actually already implemented. Uh, a similar peace agreement as Israel has with Egypt, as Israel has with Jordan, with the United Arab Emirates. Tell us the uh, current status of Israel and its relationship with the UAE. Well, my hope is that it'll be even better because uh, with Egypt and Jordan, it still remains a piece of the governments and not a piece of the people. And I hope that with the UAE, which, you know, I have visited often and I have promoted this uh, effort. Um, the latest effort was, of course, that of the United States, um, Ambassador Otaiba in Washington, the UAE ambassador. I think his article, an op-ed piece, was a critical watershed in this, uh, which he published in an Israeli paper against annexation, but um, the very fact that, that, that they would publish it in, in an Israeli paper uh, was deemed significant. Uh, he, you know that Israelis have been visiting the UAE, certainly Jews have been welcomed there. There's a shul there, they, they recognition about two years ago officially of the community which had been allowed to function in the synagogue in Dubai, which um, um, I don't know, when I was there on Shabbat, maybe 50, 60 people come every Shabbat. They have a Kiddush, there are several hundred Jews living in, the, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, but m most of the Jews are in the Dubai area. There's a, actually a second synagogue there, too, Chabad. Um, the, 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 um, so the recognition by the government and the acknowledgement in tourist books and other things of the existence of the Jewish community and the synagogue, which was unmarked, was highlighted in, in remarks that people made in the, the building, this uh, Abrahamic faith uh, center, a monotheistic uh, center. And on display in the major museum is a huge uh, chumish, uh, an old one, uh, as well as some other Judaica. The, there are Jewish students at the NYU campus there, and they have a, a rabbi who comes, or a sarna comes there and leads services, and they come to the synagogue in, in Dubai. So there have been a lot of changes in the week we were there. A year ago, we, we had the whole week kosher food. They let us fly in Mashkiach. They had, gave us all the facilities. We had a minion every day. And never a moment did we have any question about security, safety. We met with, and I have been there many times, uh, met with MBZ, and the discussions have always been open. And, I, and the real 
hope is that others will follow suit, even some of the smaller states like Bahrain or Oman, which BB visited, as you remember, and Bahrain, which has hosted Jews and, and Israelis. Uh, but we, we've seen the, the signs that barriers were coming down when Israeli athletes were able to play, and they played the Tikva, and Israeli ministers uh, came when Israeli teams were playing. The uh, ability of the, of the openness to Israel building a pavilion for the uh, 2020, which I guess won't be 2020, uh, <laughs> Expo. But, but there's been this steady uh, progress, and, and I think that the um, significance should not be underestimated. It is a difference. It's the first country in 26 years, Arab country, to officially recognize Israel. You know that Israel and the Sudan have been uh, working together and had closer relationships. Israel with Morocco, maybe this will be you know, a cover for them to, to do something more formal. Every government has to weigh it in terms of their own circumstances, and, uh, but the informal contacts or less visible contacts between all of them have been going on, the trade, the security cooperation. And it's not just about Iran, but Iran certainly is a big impetus because, as many of them said, Israel's our only hope against the enemy, that they believe Israel has the capacity to help them. And and they've seen that Israel is not the source of instability, it's the source of stability. They would like to see the Palestinian issue resolved, but many of them have said to us, these are the leaders of the Arab countries, that because of the kleptocracy, the lack of democracy, the the uh, practices that they've engaged in, their refusal to, to come to the table, they said that if you ask our people, it, it doesn't make the top 10 or even the top 20 of the concerns that they have. It is an obstacle. It does limit them. And, of course, their opposition will use it as uh, against them. But I think the Palestinians got a message that they, has been trying to be communicated to them for a long time. But this is really, I think, uh, an awakening that time is not on their side. They always argued, you know, we can wait. We can wait a thousand years. We waited before. And now they see that the train is leaving the station without them. They're going to become more and more isolated. They can yell and scream that the Arab countries betrayed them. But the fact is that they're pursuing their national interest. They have provided billions and countless billions of dollars, which they say is all wasted in the, in the kleptocracy that Abbas and Arafat before him ran. So people should, should I think, see this as a very positive development. Of course, Israel had to make some concessions, whether it's uh, the, the true status of it, we'll only know in time about the uh, application of sovereignty or other um, but which is the primary issue involved. But embassies are supposed to be opened and trade and other things increased and enhanced. I, I know that even the, the Saudis have talked to us when we were there about you know the role that they think Israel can play and how much they can benefit each other. Each step is, is adding to the stability of the region, to Israel's security, and um, it's not a panacea. It doesn't end the challenges to Israel. It doesn't diminish Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, Turkey, others who, who are aggressive against Israel. But it is a change. Um, if, if one understands the advantage that Egypt and Jordan took advantage of, or, or the uh, the benefit, I should say, 
that they took advantage of when they arranged peace agreements with Israel. I mean, obviously, the you know the the uh, they probably were, were were tired of trying to maintain a strong military presence. Obviously, there still is one, but you get my point. One ready for war on their borders, and they couldn't handle it both financially and in terms of it, just a practical issue. And and they felt uh, it was a good idea to make peace with Israel, and 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 that their country can move forward in a better fashion if they would have peace on their border. Now, the UAE is nowhere near Israel. This is not a... I understand you say that, you know, Israel would benefit from this in terms of security as well, but it's not like the UAE is attacking Israel or participating in any type of aggressive action against Israel. Uh, they had to have had some... And, and by the way, if you go back 25, 30 years, and certainly to the time of the Six-Day War as far back as that and uh, the Yom Kippur War... Was the UAE essentially aligned with all the Arab states? Were they a country that today would never, it seems, you know, uh, endorse the activities and the statements of places like Iran, Lebanon, the PA, etc.? Uh, in those days, were they aligned with all the other Arab states and considered a full-blown enemy of Israel? Uh, they were. I mean, the Gulf states were considered an enemy. Saudi Arabia sent some troops in. Um, I'm not going to tell you that they were at the forefront of the, of the battle. Their troops have become much more significant in recent years, better trained. They buy very good equipment, mostly American. So, first of all, we have to see what is the, what is, incentivizes them. Right. And one is the relationship with the United States that the U.S. was behind it, President Trump, uh, Avi Berkowitz, the others deserve credit for helping to foster it and to, to making it possible. But the, the, the big thing for Egypt and Jordan, of course, was the relationship with the United States. Again, I think you raise a good point about diminishing the, the military uh, front. And, you know, they both they all have domestic challenges of terrorism, of Iranian influence, of Islamists, of others. Uh, and therefore, the the less they have to worry about Israel and the border right. with Israel, and the more that they want to benefit. I mean, right. Jordan, of course, wants Israel to be in the Jordan Valley and, and the border and to be protecting it. But for for these countries, um, it, they're not looking for U.S. aid so much as as the relationship with U.S. solidifying the uh, a block in the region. You know, they see what in the eastern Mediterranean, which I've talked about and won't go into, but about between Jordan, Cyprus, between Israel, Cyprus, Greece, and how Israel st- stood with Greece this week against the Turkish uh, military incursion uh, threat or pressure, I should say. Um, but they're working on their joint energy. They're working on other things. Egypt is now part of that. Others are, are, are part of it. Some of them, not even publicly, but have told me that they want to be included in it. The the um, and the the link to the Gulf and CC told me, you know, when I spoke to him about it um, a couple years ago, and he said I'm in and I will bring the Gulf with me. They the the linking of the positive forces, the anti-Iranian forces, the anti-Islamist forces, the anti-terrorism forces together, it's it, it's really not a long distance. From the Red Sea to the to the Indian Ocean to the to from the Gulf to the Mediterranean, and more and more, it's all interrelated. You know, the world shrinks on this, and they want to work together on COVID. In the, in the last months, they've been doing that, but more than that, they see what Israel has to offer in high tech, in economic, and in, in in agriculture, and all the things that water conservation. 
that they need, things that, that are vital to them at this time. So Iran and Syria and Lebanon, by extension, the PA, uh, to an extent, obviously Hamas for sure, they must be furious at this whole thing. The PA, most of all, but yes, they're all they're furious at anything that reflects normalization. They want normalization at a price, meaning that Israel should withdraw from everything first, and, every, and Israel, from what they define uh, as the border that they want to see, um, that many of them uh, want to see additional pressure and and uh, whether it's the boycott movements whether it's the tunnels from from uh, Lebanon right. or the militias along the Golan or whether it's Hezbollah now you know that they've been firing these uh, sending these uh, uh, balloons which have done a lot of damage i know people don't take it seriously and i've talked about it before i won't go again long into it but it is these things set many hundreds of fires are set by it and israel's deployed now a, a laser device to shoot down the balloons because once they hit they explode on an impact and they start a fire and they can land in people's homes they land in kindergartens they land all over but they do a lot of damage and israel can't just have people's lives right. they can't you know it's not that they're looking on the ground and seeing if a troop is crossing you can't keep your eyes up all the time to see if a balloon is going to hit you is trump and I'm, I'm i'm being serious with this question um as much as people in our community love to praise him for everything which i get but is he simply at the, in the right place at the right time? I mean, could Obama, Clinton, anybody have gone to the UAE or accepted a proposal from the UAE to, to go forward like this? Or now Israel is so strong, or now the world and the Middle East is so dependent on being a partner with Israel because of COVID and the potential vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, that really it's right place, right time uh, concept. And this really could not have been done by any prior Democrat, Democrat or Republican. It might have been able to be done, but but it's the countries it had to be ready for. The UAE had to be ready, and as I said, the ambassador right. made this proposal, Ambassador Taibman, uh, to the to the U.S. government, which latched onto it, um, going to to Kushner and others, and saying, "Look, we we will." move ahead on diplomatic relations, go to them, but say, in exchange, we want them right. to stop the the annexation because the feeling was, and I've talked to the ambassador about it, uh, that uh, many in the, in the Middle East feel that that will become a red flag. It will excite the populations. It would create a tremendous backlash. Others, obviously, especially in Israel, feel this is the opportunity. So I do think the election sort of gave it an, an inducement that uh, even if if uh, the government if the government's change it will take months it'll take till next march april till people are in place and anything could be done so they saw this was the opportunity and the fact that the trump administration's representatives got involved and that otaiba did what he did in publishing the article but but working and, and you know that israelis have been going there for a long time the head of mossad others have visited the, the different uh, gulf states uh, so there is ongoing cooperation uh, I think there are ongoing sales and commerce, too, uh, that the uh, timing was just uh, right and the uh, willingness to go to go ahead and, and um, make the, the step. But the incentive was that it's still the Trump peace plan. Right. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world of web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. Uh, do you think there's a Nobel Peace Prize in the uh, in the future for President Trump after this move? 
Well, first of all, we should note that uh, uh, Senator Biden uh, supported it, came out uh, and praised it. Uh, the, the move, uh, of course, claiming the credit for that previous administrations. And it's true that previous administrations have tried to, to move uh, some of these things along. Um, so <clears throat> I think it's certainly, given some of the other Nobel Prizes that have been given out, I certainly think this one deserves a recognition of that kind. Does this help him in the uh, in the election, or it's irrelevant? In the election here, I, I don't think most Americans uh, cared. In the Jewish community, people who follow it and who listen to your show will see the significance of it. But again, it's not the sole determinant. They vote on, on many factors. Uh, I think many of those who would be influenced by this would, were voting for Moretti. But I don't think he did it for, for political reasons. I do think for the general American public, it shows that he's engaged, that the administration was engaged, and it's a, a positive step. I mean, you can't diminish it. You can't demean it. It's an important step, even mm-hmm. though Israel had to make a concession. And whether it's permanent, temporary, the president last night said both. Uh, Netanyahu has said both. Uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. But for now... We can see this as a breakthrough. You can see the economic benefits at a time when Israel's economy is under strain, when you have uh, many unemployed, uh, the impact of COVID, that having new markets, having new opportunities, new investment, um, and new partners is very important. Will it help or hurt Bibi politically? I think it helps him. Uh, Obviously, some on the right are critical of him uh, for doing this, but I think those who are reflective about it, uh, uh, you know, and again, it's not one thing that, that they vote on, and he hasn't, he didn't, he says he did not give up on the ultimate implementation of it, but I think for most Israelis, we'll see it as um, as a positive move. They all want to go and visit there, I can tell you that. And, and as I said, I'm waiting for the Pesach program. So, it's a UAE. That's hilarious. So so when someone calls me from Israel this morning and says, oh, my gosh, everybody hates Bibi now, they're obviously talking about a select category of people who are not happy with the non-annexation part of the deal. Well, no, the people on the right now was something it promised, so that it's, it's a question has to deal with. But I think that there has been a lot of anti-Bibi sentiment um, even in the right, but there is no real alternative right now, and nobody wants to go to elections. Whether BB will, will want to go now based on this and, and the other circumstances to avoid actually transferring power to, uh, to, to, to Blue and White and to see Benny Gantz as prime minister, to um, his own issues, which uh, are obviously very uh, relevant for all his considerations of what he faces in the trial starting in January. Um, I give him more credit than that. I think he does put the national interest above it and, and pursued this because it is really uh, important. The, um, uh, but yeah, his, his polls don't necessarily reflect very good uh, standing, but I, I think if you would ask Israelis about this, I think the vast majority will, will welcome it and celebrate it. Erdogan wasn't happy with it. Erdogan's not happy with anything that's good for Israel. Erdogan is becoming more and more radical, and despite the fact and the efforts of some, even here, to to, um, moderate his image, 
The fact is that he is engaged all over the world in hostile activities. He's on the wrong side of all of the conflicts, whether it's in uh, Yemen or in Libya or in uh, Sudan or um, in Ethiopia or in Nagar-Karabakh. Uh, he's sort of waffles there on, on it. And uh, but on on the energy issues and against Greece, it, oh, I mean, he's stirring trouble. He's he's claiming, you know, this deal with Libya that gives them control across the Mediterranean. He's brought his warships into these areas, and he he now this uh, in the last two days giving citizenship to Hamas leaders so that they can come to Turkey, even though he promised Israel that he would not do that. Wow. Uh, so. Yeah, I think Erdogan, it could be predicted, would be unhappy, that the Iranians would be unhappy. Um, does that mean then, as the equation goes, if your enemies don't like it, it must be okay? Is Putin unhappy, or we don't know yet? We don't uh, know. It, it, I mean, he's unhappy because he didn't pull it off. But I think uh, overall, and, and Russia, too, is, is becoming... Uh, more aggressive in its outreach. It's building bases in six African countries right now. It's certainly present in um, many of the conflicts like Libya uh, and certainly in, the, in in Syria, and they are against Iran. So to that degree, uh, I think he, he would welcome it because it weakens the uh, allies of, of Iran and Iran standing in the region. Uh, they, uh, But he pursues Russia's interests. He does it cleverly. He knows how to maximize his troops and minimal his investments uh, are minimal in many of these conflicts. Yet he's able to translate it into to gaining significant footholds. The economic conditions in in, in Russia are terrible, and yet he he uh, plays a region as you know. He, he doesn't want competition in the supply of energy that goes to Israel. So some of the pipelines that Israel and others are involved with, you know, are not something that he looks on favorably. He wants to have that chokehold, and Germany has been facilitating it. Uh, but we see more and more Europeans expressing concern about that. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I- I'm going to continue to remind my family and friends, especially those in the younger generation, that it was not always like this. Uh, there are people who think that Israel's always been at the top of the world, <laughs> that other countries, including uh, enemies and former enemies of theirs are, you know, begging them for their technology and want to partner with them for their research. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure this has. I mean, I know, I know because it's been meaning it's been in the news. And you mentioned it how the vaccine ob- obviously is part of this as well. One would have to suspect that there's a good chance that when this vaccine, whichever country is responsible for it, uh, comes out, Israel will likely be a very important point country, right? In the distribution of the vaccine, you just have to assume that at this point. So any country that has a good relationship with Israel is only going to benefit from that and obviously other stuff down the road. Well, we saw that the claims uh, this week by Russia of having the vaccine, and it seems Hadassah Hospital was involved in the research and in the development. Uh, And Israeli scientists and others are are all over the world today working on uh, vaccines, going to Europe, going to others. They've opened up their research files. They, They even made available patented uh, stuff to during the crisis to to countries to to copy their the ventilators and other things that they were able to make uh, so it, Israel is a hub and and that's why we pushed this Mediterranean project for the last 10 years and the same reason why we pushed for relations and and ties to to the Gulf because Israel can be the hub yeah. Israel doesn't have vast land it doesn't have vast natural resources uh, 
they have created, you know, through, through desalination, water supply. They, they are in the forefront in agriculture and other things and maximizing the productivity of what they have. But they, others look at it and see it as the brain trust and see what, what they can gain. And because of its geopolitical position, uh, you know, sitting near the Suez, sitting on the Red Sea, the Mediterranean, uh, it, you know, it was a crossing place in the past where ships would come into Haifa or Ashdod and train or truck over to the Red Sea and be able to go uh, further east. You know, one of the benefits people don't realize is if Israel gets overflight rights, it cuts hours off of the trip to the Far East. Or if they get, right. particularly about Saudi Arabia, which is very important as that economically is is a more and more important destination. I'll tell you, like we try to convince individuals who are in conflict, it's just to everyone's benefit when countries are not in conflict because. You did, like you just said, you know, the, the, the convenience factor increases like crazy, the, the ability to build economically, the ability to stop using resources for military and, and, and terror like some countries are doing and helping out the citizens of the country who are suffering like crazy in the streets is also a big benefit. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, and I know this is not totally their fault because obviously that massive accident uh, is one of the results. Is there even a government now in Lebanon? I know the entire cabinet resigned. Who's in charge? Okay, that's a good question, actually, uh, because the answer might be different every hour. The, the, but I just want to say that the, if you look, each of these countries are facing multiple conflicts right. that they are involved with, both domestically will have challenges, but regionally and even beyond. So it has, you know, they, they, you're right that it's important for countries, also important for individuals, that if they would all re- realize how much they lose in conflict situations, right. whether it's in a community, in a right. shul, or something else. It took me a few decades to realize this, but thank God I realized it before, you know, while I'm still around. <laughs> right. So Lebanon, uh, the government resigned. They gave in the resignation to General Awun, who's the president, who used to be head of the Christian forces, an ally of Israel, turned enemy, uh, who's now back sort of weaning away from Hezbollah. Um, the, so, and Hezbollah obviously still has determined say and, and influence. Maybe we'll have even more. The problem is nobody wants to be prime minister. So they, while they shop a new government, the, inter- the old government is an interim government, yeah. uh, and the prime minister remains. Obviously, the challenge of rebuilding Beirut is, is overwhelming, and I, I, I'm sure you know there have been offers of aid, but nothing compared to what the need is. And many governments today are under stress, you know, for even our own government in terms of huge amounts of aid because of the cost of the of COVID and, and attendant uh, support that had to be given. So it's not a great time to make an international appeal, but I'm sure the uh, International Monetary Fund or Bank others will will do stuff. But the, the need, and in my conversation with people there, um, the needs are, are astonishing. People told me that whole blocks uh, and blocks much. and blocks, in fact, they're going back. Half of Beirut has been destroyed or badly damaged. Mm. Thank God the synagogue uh, survived. So the government right now is a temporary government. They're they're looking for a new prime minister. I hope they don't have to go to elections. I hope that a lot of the sentiment against Hezbollah will will grow and the anti-Hezbollah sentiment, because clearly they were in charge of this, and we, we, we get to know more and more that this was intended for use on the border with Israel. There is a whole history of 
um, them using uh, nitrate, ammonium nitrate, and storing it in Germany and Cyprus and Britain and other places where Hezbollah operatives were caught with it. So we don't even know where else they have it. Um, and they, you know, it's a used in fertilizer, but it's also used in explosives. Well, I don't think we have the full story yet. There are more people who believe now that it could be weapons were stored underneath that because Iran increasingly was shipping through that port, which is controlled by Hezbollah, and Nasrallah's brother-in-law is the head of the port. Um, and, of course, everybody blames somebody else. But the, the, the uh, nature of the explosion, and you look at the three, the series of three explosions, um, and they clearly were different, uh, one from the other, that there was a feeling that there were weapons there, and either they were set off or they set off, or that there was some human error. Something has to trigger it. Ammonium nitrate doesn't just explode, but with heat, with the light, if a, a spark, something could have triggered um, what led to this uh, massive explosion. All right, quickly, if we can, did you see the item about Bitcoin funding terror groups? Yes, and it was something that's been feared all along because it's anonymous and not traceable, and it's, um, it will increasingly be, as long as it's around and, and grows in popularity, it'll grow in significance as a means of transferring funds to criminals, to terrorists, to others. Uh, and, uh, I mean, we've spoken about her so often over the last few months, I didn't feel the need to, to make her a real headline in this weekly update, but people do want to know, uh, what you have to say now that Joe Biden has chosen his running mate? Well, uh, Kamala Harris uh, had a relationship with the Jewish community. You know, she is, it's been pretty public that she's married to a Jew. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know it by now. Uh, she, she, I, I've met him, and he, uh, she spoke to us uh, last September while she was running for president. Uh, she's smart. She's articulate. I think amongst the names that were circulated, she was the best. Um, and we'll have to see what what she has to say on the campaign trail. Uh, the fact that Biden rejected the uh, word occupation and um, um, and other things that uh, you know there were a lot of pressures on him to pick other people. But we'll have to see who are, who are the dominant forces, who are the influentials, what kind of the cabinet would he have? Um, you know, people speculate because of his age about how long. He'll be able to stay in office, and whether we're voting for a vice president, president, um, you know, she hasn't had that long a tenure, but she was uh, an attorney general and a district attorney, uh, so she has a, a record on a lot of the issues. But the demands within the party of what where the people are at, and hopefully, because uh, unfortunately, the rise of crime and other things, we will see the pendulum swing back. Uh, from those who are demanding defunding um, police and other things which are irrational, that's certainly not the position of uh, Biden. But I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Does this help uh, President Trump? Does it hurt him? What happens with control of the Congress, which is equally important? And you saw Elon Omar's victory this week um, by a significant margin, and some of the uh, some others associated with the squad. But they, they we shouldn't exaggerate their power or their influence. And she, they gained two people, which is too too many. But it's it's um, we shouldn't um, put too much emphasis on it. We should be working to help those Democrats who stand with us as as we hold help Republicans who stand with us. We want Israel to be a bipartisan issue. We want anti-Semitism to be a bipartisan issue. We want other concerns that we have and that we share with, in general with the public to, 
to be addressed. Finally, on that topic of people standing with us, are you aware of this uh, New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America who have sent a questionnaire for 2021 city council candidates in New York asking the following, do you pledge not to travel to Israel if elected to city council in solidarity with Palestinians living under occupation? Even, right. even though foreign policy falls outside the purview of municipal government, gestures like travel to a country by elected officials from a city the size and prominence of New York still send a powerful message, as would the refusal to participate in them. And the second question is, do you support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement? If not, why? Right. Outrageous. It's it's more than outrageous, uh, but it is where much of the extreme left has gone. Um, and we have some problems on the extreme right, and we have problems in, in other associations and linkages and, you know, the intersectionality. But here, for them to, to so blatantly give expression to it and to, to ask candidates, and I hope that none of them will even respect it to answer this questionnaire, and we'll just tear it up and throw it out, um, but but it has become more and more complex and more and more acceptable to be able to say things, especially about the Jews or Israel, uh, that uh, would not be acceptable in other circumstances. The use of the Internet, now Facebook taking some measures this week to counter it, but we have to keep the pressure on. We have to expose them, uh, groups like the DSC. It's not a Democratic Party operation. Um, uh, but they they have to be held to account, and their members should be holding them uh, to account because for whatever their agenda is, this certainly can't can't um, can't fly. But we see that the there is a beginning of a reaction to a lot of the anti-Semitic stuff. We see people, and we're working, and everybody is working full time trying to counter the expressions of anti-Semitism that become more acceptable in in various circumstances when public officials, when you have um, the woman who won the race in, I think, in Georgia who supports QAnon, and you have others who, who are publicly associating with uh, hostile comments, and you have others, and I've talked about the case of Nick Cannon, who actually came to dinner Friday night uh, for Shabbat meal, and who is really quite a remarkable guy and, and far from an anti-Semite, but he makes mistakes. So you have to discern where there's somebody who, as he says, I'm doing true he fasted on Tisha B'Av. I mean, he's, he's done a lot, and he, he's been meeting with uh, Ramani, he's meeting with people. Um, but I, I can tell you, I mean, I think I've met him now several times over the last couple of weeks uh, for a long time, long periods. And i got to go that public and, and even to call on others to, to do the same. So we shouldn't jump at every, you know, the gun on everybody, but we should target those who are truly anti-Semitic to those who are propagating these messages. And what he said was offensive. He recognizes it. Sometimes it's really out of ignorance that people say things or things that they pick up without even thinking about um, you know, slogans become so easy, and young people today, because of the Internet and stuff, you see what rappers say, the hatred, the yeah. anti-Semitism, other things. You know, the Rothschilds become this flashpoint. Of, you, you, all of them keep making references, and you ask them, well, what do you know about the Rothschilds? And the answer is nothing. And yet the, it, it's because they become the, the symbol to show Jewish control, Jewish influence. So we have to stay on top of it. We have to respond to it. Again, people report anti-Semitic incidents. I know there were some this week that were not reported where there's harassment or other things that we don't have statistics.
six. It's like doing the census. If you don't do yeah. it, we lose. 100%. You lose resources. Police are, are called to and are assigned to where there is a demand. Oh, thank God we don't have shootings and stuff like in other parts, but. Uh, you know, it it doesn't stop at a border. It doesn't uh, doesn't have a particular geographic locus. So it's very important for people report it, and if the police don't come, complain and and go on record about it, and make sure that uh, that you get a report filed about every incident and everything that that occurs that. Uh, violates uh, community standards. Malcolm, I thank you. Uh, we'll speak a week from today. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks so much. Have a great Shabbos, a good Chodesh, one month to level, so, you know, got to think about it. Unbelievable. <laughs> hard, hard to believe we got into this point. The uh, yeah. high holidays right around the corner. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.